Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. This is the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and I'm here with Clara Van Winkle, a poet, essayist, and literary translator. She currently teaches creative writing, composition, literature, and grammar in Queens College, Brooklyn uh, Borough of Manhattan Community College, and the Fashion Institute of Technology. In addition to her creative and academic pursuits, Claire is a recreational therapist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Her clinical, um, clinical work and research focus is on the development and implementation of pedagogical uh, theory, therapy, which applies linguistic theory and creative writing workshops, methods to one-on-one group therapy sessions for inpatient psychiatric patients. So, uh, so we're here, so let's see. Uh, why don't we start off with the poem, Claire, and you can uh, say hi to the audience and start off with a poem, sure. Shouting out from the Rockaways. Uh, Place of Laughing Waters for Sandy. I've decided to drain the ocean, to down it slowly, slurping the salt sea whole like a live oyster. Fine shrapnel of roseate shell shearing my throat, empty as eau de vie, that voluptuous body of water. I'll wait until dusk when the fatted sandbags stand shepherdless. I'll steal them away, claim them as mine, and stamp my brand on their backsides. Because, you see, I've decided to appeal my poor portion of history. I can't lay claim to the consomme of Jamaica Bay. I know the bodies that bob up and down there like pale potatoes are part of some other's starved story. I neither saved a soul nor needed rescuing myself. I did not dry drown, electrocute, drift away, or fray my left femoral artery, fumbling for my gentle grandmother's wedding ring. No, the pain I knew was nothing in comparison to some. But even so, I will have my say. I dare deem that day mine because I dream still of wind, still wonder whether or not I'll ever be expected to evacuate the only home I've known again. I still hear sirens dampened by dull waves and obliterated dunes. I was lucky, but listen. I lived there, loved there, and when the ocean wore down the winding shore, I lost something there. When the tide went out, some pearl that had been working its way to the surface of me went out with it, caught in the undertow, still feels at sea. So why don't we talk a little bit about the composition, the origins of this poem in particular, and uh, how it came about? So I have lived in Rockaway for about eight years. It's just weird enough out here to accommodate me, but... And I was here for Sandy. I was <laughs> I was pretty yeah. stupid. I stayed out here and didn't evacuate. Um, we had Irene the year before. Nothing happened. So, hey, what's a hurricane, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, <laughs> obviously it was a big deal for the whole neighborhood. Um, I People always ask me, wow, you were there for Sandy. You must have so much to write about. But one thing that I learned, there there are so many hindrances to writing about important historical events in your own life. One of those things has to do with what kind of story we can lay claim to, even as a participant. I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose anyone close to me in my life. 
people did lose immense amounts of property. Lives were lost here. These these stories weren't really reported very well. But as a poet, I was kind of thinking, who am I to write the to write this emotional piece when I didn't lose enough? But I was actually in a poetry workshop and I had to write a formal poem. Um, it, the form happened to be Anglo-Saxon, a form I had never written before. Um, and I just decided to kind of use Sandy because I didn't know how to get into it. And using the form helped me to take all of the ideas that had been sort of populating my journals and put them into something cohesive. And I don't know that I ever would have written about Sandy. I've written more since. I don't know that I ever would have written about it if I hadn't been given the challenge of using language in a different way. Yeah, I think that what you're, what's connecting with me is the idea that we all live through historical events in a sense. There's always, there's always some, everyone's lived through something that has resonated in history, uh, is an important event. And when we talk about that event, we have to talk about using language that accesses both the event and our personal experience of that event. So sometimes, you know, with a lot of people's writings, we uh, don't want to go over common territory, like territory that's very familiar to the reader, because then uh, the, way, the way events are talked about in the public sphere is the way that's familiar territory and charting new territory into that event to be able to reflect our entire experience of that event is what I think poetry, the poetics of experience comes into play. So um, one thing I have a question to ask you is that uh, when you talk about the form, uh, so innovating or bringing that form, uh, taking that form and then connecting with it, with your inner experience and um, talk a little bit about like how that process happens. Yeah. So I'm going to back up and go with yeah. something you mentioned, the idea uh -huh. of historical events. And I'm going to pull out my inner essayist yeah. and say um, my true belief is that the life experience itself is a historical event. What we do, how we live, the choices we make, these are the things that resonate through memoirs. And they're the things that we use as we interrogate our own fictional characters. Um, how that has to do with form and language. Uh, my favorite essayist, Joan Didion, once said, the ability to think for oneself depends upon one's mastery of the language. Sure, sure. This is an idea that I use in teaching and in my personal writing um, because mastery of the language is something that we have to be really open about. Mastery of the language means thinking in different forms, embracing different languages. Um, part of my ability to write poetry has to do with my experience translating French poetry. But the whole idea of form, yes, there's a tradition element. Tradition can inform everything that falls within the form we choose, but just looking at the way we use language and opening our mind to new forms helps us to better articulate and refine our own inner dialogue. So just to clarify, with the, our discussion of historical events, mm -hmm. um, let's further get into that. I'm talking kind of personal histories, and personal this is history. not to diminish yeah. historical value, but Sandy was just, an, oh, I mean, yeah. it was another day. I, I was here. It, it was something big that happened, but... The whole thing is that we live through important and groundbreaking moments, no matter our 
proximity to them. Everyone should write about everything, okay. in other words. So nobody necessarily owns a historical event. There should be no discouragement from writing about things in order to better understand them. I, I think that, I definitely agree. I think that we have historical events as like a shared experience. Right. And uh, in the shared narrative, the um, uh, shared perception of reality even, mm -hmm. you know, that the story gets disrupted by certain events that happen that are very maybe traumatic or dramatic to the uh, collective perception of who they are and a group's perception of who they are. So, for example, like 9-11 would be a major uh, breakthrough for many people to understanding who America is and what their relationship to the rest of the world is. So that was a threshold moment where Americans began to shift their perception of themselves and, and others, you know? Can I jump in on that? Sure, because sure. as a teacher, I mm -hmm. and as somebody who lived, I lived at Houston and 6th Avenue when, yeah. when the towers came down, um, I, I started to feel, I guess, like a grown-up when I realized that my students were so young that they heard about this from their parents mm. and that my students, my college students right now, do not remember the day. Um, and this is exactly what we're talking about. The question yeah. is, can I write about it even though I don't remember it? Because the whole world still talks about it. Mm. And my students struggle to even understand how to <laughs> connect with it outside of just what people say about it, how history is reported to them, how politicians use discussions of September 11th, how their parents experienced it. And again, just the idea of students wanting to write about these pivotal moments, mm -hmm. but feeling like they don't have the permission to embrace or have their own ideas about them. When my students write about September 11th, they never write about their own experiences. Yeah. They're they think, always... What they perceive as the facts, right? What they perceive as not just even the facts, but as the ideas. Um, the, the idea, if you talk to them about the timeline of that day, if you talk to somebody who was around and an adult then about the timeline of those events, you'll get a pretty specific story from anybody in New York. But the whole my whole point is that these young writers should be encouraged to do uncomfortable research and to allow themselves to have a first-person voice in the ongoing dialogue of history. So what we're getting into really is like perception is, common perception is that these events happened in a timeline that, you know, in 2001, such and such happened. Our personal uncovering of those, so for people who did not, were not alive at that time. They, or not they, in New York. They uncovered that for themselves. That's, it's almost like when they're, if they had a narrative um, about America that was the commonplace before 9-11, and then they, they understood, they revealed what happened in 9-11, and they had that threshold moment, it's, in a sense, it's like the psychological process that people, we went through when 9-11 happened, it's happening again for them. It's like that day is the day that 9-11 happened for them, you know, I would argue. And also, yeah. I would just, as a writing teacher and as a writer, um, as our anthology of individual stories grows, so too does our perception of history in the making. Exactly, yeah. And so having more perspectives, that is always going to be better than having fewer or homogenized perspectives. So being politically correct 
that is a statement that I feel is has become more complex because sometimes students, my students, feel they have to just repeat what other people say yeah. for fear of offending people when really their own stories are a valid part of a changing dialogue and students who lack certain cultural perspectives are really ready to open their minds and be corrected about misconceptions they have, but they're afraid to ask the questions in the first place. So I think this returns to kind of the metaphor you used uh, a little bit earlier, which is that we see, you know, in our day-to-day life, in our routine life, mm-hmm. we're seeing um, familiar mm-hmm. territory. We're seeing familiar landmarks. We're seeing familiar areas, and we get desensitized right. to the importance or the impact of those familiar words or those familiar sites, mm-hmm. those familiar places. And in exploring new territory, or not even new, but territory is surprising. Mm-hmm. The territory that uh, jars or the territory that um, uh, shocks, you know, in a way, or disrupts. Uh, then we have that experience of recalibrating and right. rethinking where we're going. And in a sense, it kind of changes who we are, changes our being. So I would argue that, you know, that not only that uh, our students who... Um, are repeating or rehashing language or perspectives that they heard, they're not being true to themselves as a person, their own experience, and they're not exploring their experience. They're afraid to explore that experience. So they really uh, yeah. are. Do you, I'm sorry, I don't know this. Do you teach? I've Where taught, you, yeah, I've taught, okay. I taught, uh, well, I mean, the, the experience of I'm, my teachings, yeah, was, uh, I was just, I, <laughs> so, just to, yeah. um, given my, my experience, and I, I think we're going to talk about my workshop and my, yeah. my work as a therapist later, yeah. um, teaching is also something that needs to start to push the boundaries of its own definition. As soon as you help somebody read anything, that becomes a close reading. Yeah. You work at a library. I know yeah. this. If yeah. you help someone find a book on some level, you're teaching. So I guess just like, and I, we had talked about this a while ago, just like when I ask people if they like writing, they say, oh, well, I write, but I'm not a writer. Yeah. A writer writes and it, a teacher teaches. Yeah. So own it. And also, it, it has to do with the <laughs> communication. I think that, you know, using language to communicate whether it be in writing, whether it be orally, or whether it be in any way, you're communicating, you're expressing yourself to another person. Uh, you're also creating yourself in a way that Absolutely. is, uh, you're creating your experience, creating your being to yourself. And also the way you talk to ourselves is uh, a vital part. Any way we communicate in language, using words, whether it be to ourselves or inner dialogue or to others, uh, creates a state of being. And that being is informed of the language, language informs the state of being. There's a reciprocal relationship there. So well, and and actually, all of that that you just said—the idea of um, language being something that both expresses who we are and creates who we are—I um, know in our previous discussions we talked about you know grammar and technical things first, but what you just said really speaks to what I do yeah. in therapy. Yeah, because the one thing that has, to in my opinion been underexplored in psychology is the idea of how revision actually revising the way that we speak in our interior dialogue the way that we speak not only to ourselves but to a piece of paper if we're writing or to each other if we're sharing our work how that revision can change Not the way we, I mean, yes, the way we think, but actually the way we feel and 
the way that we can cope with trauma and deal with issues. Mm. So what I'd say just to, now circling back to your question about being a teacher. So just to clarify, uh, I did go through some training. Okay. Teaching theory and I taught high school for about a year. In New uh, York? In New York and uh, Brooklyn. And uh, my experience with that is resonates with what you're saying because um, so I looked at the standards that I understood the state sets for freshman up to senior year. And I tried to um, meet those standards. Mm -hmm. However, the administration, the AP and the principal were saying to me that or communicating to me that students in that school were working at what they considered a sixth grade level and that I should try to low pitch them. You know, I should try to uh, bring down the level to a level that I felt was not meeting the standards. Right. There was a little bit of a contestation there in that that education uh the philosophy of education has become, or the approach to education has not become to bring up the student, but rather to low pitch. You did know? you feel they were, and, and this is an open question, not a leading, but did you yeah. feel they were underestimating the students at I all? I believe so, yes, yes. And what, for example, I gave a, a concrete example was I, gave, I proposed to do a science fiction unit. Oh man, I did which, that, yeah. Uh, which is very nice. I think it's very nice because I thought to my, the, ra- the rationale to doing a science fiction unit for me was that it would create more engagement, that the students would be more intrigued by the premises of, of the stories. However, they countered with that they wouldn't be able to understand it. We're living or, in a dystopia. What could yeah. be more relevant? Exactly. Yeah, the presumption <laughs> of what's relatable. Right. Yeah, the presumptions that they have, the assumptions they have about the students. Yeah. It's strange because um, I've had similar issues even in teaching college with the idea of... The administration or in college, it's individual teachers um, evaluating what you're doing or large meetings in which we talk about standards and yeah. approaches. And everybody's really worried about what students will understand. Yeah. But if students are engaging with the work, it, it you don't always have to understand something 100%. You yeah. struggle with it. It's hard to learn. Yeah. It's okay to not know what you're reading so you ask questions about it i mean i love classrooms where everybody is asking questions and helping to answer questions and it's almost as though we're so worried about our students maybe it's the teacher's job to help students understand that questions are the backbone of learning rather than answers yeah i think definitely having an inquisitive inquisitive mind is important to be able to like when i go into a territory i don't know even though i've heard of yeah, you know, I may have read a guidebook to a country I'm visiting, right? Wait, so yeah. those when I go traveling. So the context of, of this parallel, this metaphor, is like when I go traveling, uh, I use a guidebook and I understand there are certain sites that I'm going to see. And then seeing it, you know, being able to, like, there are certain landmarks I know I want to visit. Right. So you're traveling around and then you're like, oh, where am I? You're unfamiliar. But you have pleasure in that because, you know, this is a new experience. You understand the context. You're inquisitive. I want to find this landmark, this kind of thing. So I draw the parallel with this is to bring it back to what you're saying. So in other words, when a student encounters a text where they don't understand all the ideas or it's unfamiliar, mm-hmm. at the very least, they should have landmarks or markers where it would be like, all right, now I'm at the Eiffel Tower. I've heard about the Eiffel Tower. This is the Eiffel Tower. So I, how would you how would you bring it closer to home? Yeah. I'd basically say that if. I were, and this might sound snarky, I don't mean it that way. Uh Um, If a student of mine were to write an essay about France and they just wrote about the landmarks, I would say that essay 
happen to be incomplete because yeah. do, are you familiar with the or oh man i'm such a nerd the origin <laughs> of the word essay no, no from the french essay uh-huh. um michel de montaigne was the first to officially um designate that as a form sia means to try that is what the word means it means to try something out so when we teach rhetoric when the tradition of the classroom the idea of of writing about things we don't quite understand yet it's because we're trying out ideas yes there's also the debate aspect where we want to see other sides but we want to try out our own ideas to follow a potential argument, a potential idea we might have mm-hmm. to its logical conclusion before we take that idea out into the world and subject yeah. someone else to it, right? Yeah. So essays are, I don't know, my students treat essays as though in, in two totally contradictory ways. One, I need to regurgitate what the teacher wants. I need to just write about the Eiffel Tower. Two, will I disagree with myself later? Yeah. And the idea that that might be a problem instead of really being passionate about something and writing about it and daring to write about a landmark your reader may not have heard of. Yeah. Also, what I was trying to create in that analogy was um, the actual experience of going to... You right. Know, and trying to connect with... That when I tell people, when I communicate people with travel stories, uh-huh. I think the experience is that we want to use language that's more precise. Right. Um, and that even though we have these experiences, we, we scan over them. So we're not g- digging into them on a day-to-day basis. So Well, I love that. I, I love the idea of, of precision because yeah. precision comes across in my, um, I'm going to say working ideology, my Mm. ongoing efforts to understand how we teach and learn in two different ways. And um, in terms of precision, one aspect has to do with how we technically use language and one aspect has to do with the expressive and poetics of language. In terms of, of precision, though, your experience of a place is interesting because the details you see are unique to you. If you can command your language well enough to communicate your actual point of view, it will be interesting to anybody. I mean, if you look at, go go to any museum, you will see (laughs) pictures of strangers and lots of pictures of the same places. And we look at each one because Mm. they're all different. Yeah. Language allows us to see what might otherwise be unseen. It allows us to see a point of view. I think a lot of people have the mistaken impression that they should be using unfamiliar words or they should be using text or uh, jargon when actually the opposite is mm-hmm. true. A jargon helps understand uh, points. I think jargon or... When you say yeah. jargon, do you mean working vocabulary? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I mean by jargon is like when you get really skilled at a specific unfamiliar territory can i jump yeah, in there as that, yeah. so just uh, my my background before i was a writer before yeah. i had my mfa or you yeah. know whatever people call being a writer with a capital w is yeah. um i was i studied psychology mm. so what we call jargon um can often be working vocabulary which yeah. means that in every technical profession words are used in a way that is specific only to that profession. Yeah. If you say joining something in construction, it's talking about a very specific process, yeah. whereas I can join a group without, um, you know, some sort of epoxy. 
right? Uh. So working, I, I love the idea of a working definition because jargon sort of, and I'm not picking on you here, but yeah, jargon implies that the words are temporary or don't have meaning, whereas working vocabulary means I need to establish for my audience what this word means when I use it. Oh, I think yeah. lots of disagreements and everything from academic to romantic relationships has to do with a failure to communicate a working vocabulary. I definitely believe that. And I think also what I was kind of hinting towards is that when we get deeper and deeper into a private experience, mm -hmm. uh, we may use words that function in a way that indicates that specific experience. Right. So I don't know what the word symbol would you say? Or when I talk about work or I talk about my job, right. I'm specifically not talking about being a librarian or being a supervising librarian. I'm simply talking about my experience of my work at my specific community library. Right. So, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, and then there's... Uh, I teach yoga also, and the uh -huh. owner of the yoga studio says she doesn't work a day in her life because she teaches yoga. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so there are all of these different ways that we use language. And um, I, I'm a translator and I'm a poet. Mm. I believe that language should be malleable and used in many different ways. Yeah. Um, but something that is sometimes these days overlooked is the importance of agreeing on working vocabulary or functional conventions, yeah. like grammar, yeah. say. Yeah. If we're talking about vocabulary, I need to know what you mean by work. I need to know what you mean by trouble. I need to know what you mean by anything you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and as long as we get on the same page, we're okay. But another issue that comes up is is how we actually use language to communicate. And you mentioned symbols, and I want yeah. to address that. So language, we often think that language functions by definitions or by concrete parcels like numbers and mathematics. But, and this is my theory, I will put this out there, is my working theory that I'm researching and um, backing up by research at the psychiatric, so researching in uh, the existing literature and backing up by functional research as my work as a therapist at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Um, language, in my opinion, in my experience, is not a discrete set of formulae. It is a compendium of poetics, meaning that we don't actually think in terms of dictionary definitions. We're not Google. Yeah. We, and, and when I say we, I am delighted. I was delighted to learn that this is universal. This doesn't have to do with culture. We think in terms of poetics, metaphor. Mm. So for example, I hear what you're saying. I see what you mean. Head of the class. All of these things are are metaphors. These are just the tips of the iceberg. There you go. Saying, tips yeah. of the iceberg. Yeah, like tip, even yeah, that. Yeah. And I'm gonna ruin. Yeah. Now all of all of our listeners are gonna yeah. are going to their lives are a little bit ruined because yeah. now they're gonna hear these things yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, but so at the broad level, understanding that words are um, and this is beyond semiotics, I don't know, there yeah, eventually, yeah. Um, beyond the idea of representation versus what is represented, words function as poetics. We, ha we are complex individuals who mm. can't force empathy upon another person, yeah. um, but sometimes sympathy isn't enough. Sometimes we need poetics to allow someone 
to have a deeper understanding than logic would allow. Um, going back to, because you were talking about symbols and words as symbols. Yeah. Um, and again, beyond, uh, beyond semiotics, the idea of words representing things when we think of symbols, um, we might think of a heart representing love. Okay, that's something that a lot of people consider an accepted symbol in whatever culture, right? But in our own lives, um, symbols function at the level of poetics, mm. meaning that if you're reading a book, you can identify symbols that exist in the working vocabulary of that book, the working emotional vocabulary of that book. Mm. Um, the context, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The con symbols are taken in context. And in terms of personal expression, we all come up with our own symbols uh, and we need to make those known to our audience. So part of what I do in, in my as a therapist is I help my patients to understand their own feelings, not just by journaling and catharsis, but by examining the way they express themselves in order to identify the personal symbols mm. that, just like we would with a fictional character, allow us to see beneath the superficial summaries of personality. Yeah, I think also what happens is that in interpersonal communication, we are not able to access the person's meaning because of the fact that We've heard these words mm -hmm. used in other situations or interactions where they mean something different than what that person intends them to mean. Like if so I said, VJ, I love you. Yeah. No, really, I do. That may trigger. You would be very confused in, right yeah, now, yeah, in yeah. other words. In the context of the situation, uh, the import or impact of that word might. Um, well, right now it had yeah. no impact because no, no, you yeah. pretty much figured yeah. I didn't mean it. Yeah. What if I did? Yeah. What would I mean? Yeah. I'm really saying. Yeah. 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 I just I just said I love you. Yeah. But because that word has so little meaning depending on context, uh, yeah. didn't even register, right? Yeah, I mean I just finished also I just finished an interview with uh, what is love show. <laughs> okay. So uh, that might have on the heels of that, uh, Oh, I didn't mean yeah. to embarrass you. <laughs> I actually discussed uh, in this interview on um uh what the show is called the What Is Love. We discussed um the being more precise right. in what love is and the Buddhist vocabulary of love. So that was one example of how I've kind of become a little bit. Well, know. because love is what I would call a categorical word. Yeah. So in the research and um, the papers that I'm writing about writing therapy yeah. and just to if I could give everybody a little background about creative arts therapy right now. Um, and I don't mean to speak ill of anybody. But right now, there is no place to actually learn how to be a writing therapist. Yeah. There is uh, a National Society of Poetry Therapists, but there's no place where you can go learn how to be a poetry therapist mm. in order to call yourself a writing therapist you have to go study art therapy or dance therapy you get your certification and then you call just call yourself a writing therapist yeah i am trying to change that by codifying a specific approach to using poetics and therapy that can be taught and standardized in the profession Excellent, excellent. And that has its roots in um, clinical practices and linguistic theory. And I think that this is an approach that anybody could really, you know, use uh, 
that uh, when approaching their own way of speaking, mm-hmm. that uh, they can understand how they use language and how when any communication failure happens, it's because of this basic assumption that we understand the intention or we understand the experience of others because we understand our own experience. Well, I mean, interestingly enough, though, um, with our friends, we tend to do some of this automatically. Yeah, it's Uh, assumed that there's a deeper sense in the Buddhist terms, jumping off the conversation. That's okay. But, uh, you know, it's much more difficult for us to develop empathy towards, uh, even though we have this relationship where we've repeated, uh, you know, with people that are very close to our family members or Mm -hmm. close friends, that we have a very mixed feelings of attachment and, uh, and love that um, creates a very tense relationship. I think because of the fact that we have a lot of assumptions about them and, and well, their language. You've heard them say this before, We that, you know, this kind of thing. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we very rarely look at how we use language when we talk to ourselves. Yeah. Um, we assimilate the working definitions of society and those definitions are frequently categorical rather than specific so we are required to love our parents whatever the hell that means right but it's the stories that end up mattering if you have tension with your mother or father but your internal dialogue is just well i love them i love i i that doesn't actually help you cope with the relationship. Yeah, that specific action. Right. Though, well, it doesn't. It doesn't indicate an mm-hmm. action. Yeah. It doesn't indicate a behavior. It doesn't indicate indicate a response. Yeah. There, there is no. If I said, "What does love look like?" Mm-hmm. Could you even begin to answer that? I mean, yeah. it's a rhetorical question because the answer is pretty much no. Yeah. There is no painting of love, or if there is, I'm sure there are paintings called love, but I guarantee they represent a specific incarnation of love yeah what we were the thesis of the episode of what is love is that love is being like love is a state of being and and being is constantly it is both specific and constantly in flux yeah so even within dictionary definitions if we were to use them as a as a pinging point if 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 i can imagine a scenario in which someone and this is this is kind of also calling to attention the fact that as a librarian you know, people will come to me and ask me definitions of common words. Mm-hmm. And I find that a little strange. Because right? you're a librarian and you know yeah. everything. But also oh, man, me, I love that. Uh, they ask me, they <laughs> no, ask me, I just love that answer. They literally will ask me to print out a definition of a word like a pawn or yeah. a hero or something very common mm-hmm. that we think people understand the definition of. They're so complicated. So, and yet, at the same time, when I print out, it's like a page or two long. Right. It's like, it's really, I really shouted is that assumption that I have that people should understand these words, so... I think it also pings to the idea or kind of calls to the idea that um, if we were to sit there and say, like, uh, look up every word that the person's saying that we don't understand what they mean by, mm-hmm. we wouldn't even we wouldn't be any closer to understanding what they mean because it's the person who ultimately a uh, uh, person's understanding, which ultimately have, we have to find a bridge between. Yeah. So to kind of pull it back, yeah. um, because the word understanding sort of bridges that and yeah. uh, the last little aside, um, I'm such an asshole. I actually make students read me the definitions because I love looking things up and seeing the alternative definitions because that underscores the complexity. But bringing it back to what understanding actually is, um, words are tools, but symbols are actual examples of things 
Like we communicate symbols through words, mm. but symbols, words are not in themselves symbols in terms of what a narrative symbol is. So words symbolize stuff, I guess. And again, getting to semiotics, look it yeah. up if you don't know. It's yeah. more than a page long, yeah. but I won't bog it down with yeah. this. Words symbolize stuff, but even the stuff symbolizes stuff. Yeah. So, so um, my understanding is that this is the debate, although I haven't researched it in college, I remember it from this debate in Plato and Aristotle, that my understanding is that Plato was saying that there is like tree that exists apart from the trees. And then Aristotle was saying there's only the individual trees. So, so it's, if it, uh, it's so interesting. Um, so the Plato Aristotle thing, and I'm only saying this because I am such a nerd. Yeah. Um, Plato and Aristotle argued over chairs and tables. The yeah. tree thing, you might be thinking of Sancerre. Okay, yeah. Um, only because that's his classic def his classic example. But this oh, is like, but what you're talking about with Plato and Aristotle is the idea of the form versus the reality. Reality, yeah. So when you say chair or table, you have the idea of the functionality and the basic essence of thing. Yeah. Right. That's Plato. Yeah. I believe. Yeah. But what I mean is, is kind of a little bit more basic. The idea of a personal symbol, yeah. right? Like, I guess we could break it down to when I think chair, I think this Specific this chair. thing that I'm sitting in right now yeah. that I didn't quite put together well enough that uh, wobbles. Like, yeah. I guess my idea of a chair always wobbles because my chair wobbles. Yeah. But to me, this chair will fully integrate into my symbol of home. Yeah. Right? So nothing in my home is put together quite right because I did it all by myself. But yeah. this is what home feels like to me. If I walk into a hotel room where everything is exactly right, it doesn't feel like home. Yeah. But if I'm writing in my journal and I call a bunch of different things home, I need to look for what exactly I mean and be more specific about my idea of home. That's actually a really co like complicated example, yeah. though. Yeah, I would I would simplify it by saying like there's the infinite number of chairs in this world, right? right? We've kind of like a fraction of the number of chairs that exist. Yeah. In the world, right? So because of our encountering of these specific chairs, we form an image in our mind of what a chair should be. Right. Which may or may not be accurate to the other people's understanding of what a chair is. Right. Uh, so when people we encounter who have a shared experience of the same chairs that we've encountered. We may have a better communication than with someone who has not always encountered examples of chairs that are completely or radically different than the chairs we've been And there's an idea of is form what it looks like or is form function because God help me, I still, and I'm trying not to, but I still always sit on my desk when I'm teaching yeah. in college and, and my students laugh at me because a desk is not a chair. Yeah. You know what? The function's the exact same way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think in, my, in my image of a professor... Uh, based on movies I've seen, that seems to fit. I guess. So, I know. I've seen a lot of movies where the teacher kind of stands on, or sits on tables, rather, and stands on chairs. Oh, we could get into a, yeah. whole yeah. Other, um, a whole other <laughs> argument if I talk yeah. about the fact that my, if I were to take my idea of what a professor is yeah. for movies, they'd all be dudes. Yeah, yeah. Like, let's not even go there. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> but, definitely, yeah. Yeah, and there's also the idea, and this is, actually, no, this this is important. As a female, as a female teacher who has been told, I've been told I look younger than I am, mm. um, I am constantly trying to arrange my behavior to get respect from my students. Yeah. Whereas male teachers my age, sitting on a desk, would be no thing it, it wouldn't yeah. matter yeah for me i'm so constantly trying to quote unquote look professional yeah the 
popular understanding of what a professor is supposed to look like doesn't my hair is blue right now yeah i don't do this when i teach school yeah. because for some reason a blue haired girl is not a quote unquote professor oh. right so, the working definition doesn't really apply to me so what we were what we we're discussing with the chair kind of my experiences of what is like professional what is then we we understand what how we view ourselves then mm -hmm. in that context of that word whether that's a positive or negative not as a negative association becomes solidified that we think that is what the definition is yeah so this is this is actually that's slightly different from the way okay. that i view it okay. because for me and and it's in my experience too um again not to uh, not to underestimate our students yeah by the time we get to week three of the course and I have spoken <laughs> with correct grammar for three yeah. whole weeks, I have my students respect. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can, again, the grammar thing is something we could talk about. But at that point, if I could fast forward to three weeks in of speaking with my students, the, the content and manner of my speaking wins their respect. Yeah. In a way that I think all teachers, regardless of age or sex, background, dress, whatever, yeah. that's our responsibility is to say, I am expert enough in my field to teach you. Yeah. Um, but it, it's I'm talking about the fact that it takes me a couple of weeks to get past their first. And in this case, the working vocabulary is visual. Yeah. <laughs> it's visual and experiential yeah. and what they have been told. Um, the power of language is that if I stick to my guns and just teach, I know I'll get over that. The reason why as soon as January 15th rolls around, I'm going to dye my hair back brown and yeah. start wearing collared shirts is because I don't like to waste time. I want them to listen to me on day one. Yeah. I think that also what I would say is that circling back to the kind of familiar and unfamiliar mm -hmm. that when there's, there's a, a familiar that we're desensitized too but there's an unfamiliar that also we regard in our narrative that this is like there's an unfamiliar that's intriguing and that peaks surprises or peaks someone's interest and i think that when i use language in uh teaching or in, in any kind of way we want to entice or seduce the students to be able to and do that by and make them associate being educated with being surprising, you know, surprise them, yeah. You, you know, an interesting thing, though, and this is something that I feel um, is is one of my gifts as a teacher, but something any teacher can do. Yeah. Um, my students find it surprising that I use and insist upon correct grammar, but I love it. It's yeah. not... Grammar is not a ruler slapping on the back of my students' hands. Grammar yeah. is a tool that I get excited about. And it's something that when my students use correct grammar, I get very excited about yeah. it. It's not me looking for ways to take down their grades. Yeah. And students have rarely, they rarely see this. They rare, Suddenly, the idea that their teacher is a, a younger adjunct, whatever, yeah. suddenly they're like, oh my God. Someone closer to my age actually cares about grammar. More than that, someone closer to my age actually knows this. Yeah. That is surprising and exciting to them. Yeah. And again, I would never, I was surprised by this. Yeah. I am a grammar nerd. I'm obsessed with it. I love it. It's part of linguistics that feeds into the therapy that I am researching. Mm. But my students, I, I, I 
started to really cement the importance of grammar in college education when my, uh, it was at Queensborough, the first time I had paper evaluations that students had class time to fill out. In 30 students, um, I don't know how many were there that day, but 10 different students wrote in on the op, and if if anyone out there listening is an adjunct, you know students never write on; they never yeah. take the time to like write the optional stuff. Yeah. Um. Ten different students wrote that their favorite thing about my class was learning grammar, yeah. discussions of grammar, yeah. and for all different reasons, there are all different reasons for it. But they were surprised that someone could care about it. Yeah. And they were excited by it. Yeah, I think definitely we we can draw an analogy with with uh, music. That the form, and also in poetry, the form that people we talking, we started the conversation with a specific form, the Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. and how um, you were able to use that form to write or connect with your experience, and then you allowed yourself some uh, innovation of that form, mm-hmm. which then had an impact on the reader. They were able to um, understand in that form. So a similar piece, like someone who might write an opera or someone might write a a, a jazz piece. Um, that they write these pieces to appeal because they're time they tested time honored traditions mm-hmm. and they're formulas that work have an effect on the on the listener on the reader and knowing who your listener is being able to adapt your message not so much the the content of the message but the form of the message to the listener to achieve the um, results that you want is the major. Um, discipline so i'm gonna be more cynical and i'm just gonna say if you want to if you want to write an opera and have it put on Mm. it needs to be in in the operatic format yeah of course yeah that's it i mean hold hold on a sec though because because i everything that you're saying is is valid but i'm talking you can't just create something throw the word opera on it it has to say because people will then become defamiliarized with what the word opera means. I'm not even... Bohemian Rhapsody might be an example of something that they threw a word opera onto it and that revolutionizes how we do opera. But I'm, again, back it up. I'm being even more cynical. I'm Uh, saying if you want work to be recognized and you enter an arena that requires you to use a certain form mm. in order to have a fighting chance, you use that form. I mean, you can have another version of your same project in a different form, but... If you enter a contest, say, yeah. you observe the guidelines of the contest and you don't necessarily feel artistically suppressed because mm. this is the version of my art that I'm entering into this contest, mm. right? But we wouldn't enter, I wouldn't enter a sonnet into an Anglo-Saxon form contest yeah. and saying that, oh, I'm revolutioning, yeah. revolutionizing this. Yeah. Um, grammar, too, is something that, like, not every poet needs to know how to write a sonnet, but if you know how to write a sonnet, it's another skill that you can add. Yeah. And there are certain forums in which having that form may benefit you as an artist in terms of reaching an audience looking for that form. Sure. And I would argue that what we need to do is is understand, have a deep understanding of what the expectation of the audience is based on um, the repeating pa- Like, for example, in the sonnet, we have, we've seen a bunch of sonnets. We understand how the form works, what the rules are. But I would argue that um, the importance of bringing it to a place where, where we're at and where the sonnet's at are A and C. Mm-hmm. So finding that middle ground where we can resonate with the original sonnet, but also slowly bring them up to Z even, mm-hmm. where over the course of time we have a radical um, 
translation of what the word sonic means. So if you take A and then you take Z, you take the uh, a very the first opera that was ever created, and you take Bohemian Rhapsody, right. you may feel that these things are completely different taxonomies. So, uh, you know, that, that would, I would say that there was a gradual possession, uh, progression and that in innovation, there was the thing that came before it has to guide you into the, you know. So the nice thing about forms and, and grammar and rules are that you, you can learn them and use them in their tools. Mm. Um, uh, this is the stodgy, oh, might be the stodgy, I can't promise anything. The stodgiest I might sound today yeah. is that you do need to learn a rule before you can break it. Oh, yeah. But I, one of my big problems in the idea of teaching poetry, but let's not teach form because that yeah. that weighs you down. Teaching language, but let's not teach grammar because come on, what about, you know, the way that you're used to speaking? It's like, yeah, but no matter what you like to write, all of our students are capable of learning these tools. Yeah. They can use them or not. That's yeah. fine. I'm not yeah. even saying teachers have to grade based on grammar. But the idea of using a form, um, you need to be able to... By, by So going back to that poem that I first read. Yeah. Uh, my original draft of that poem adhered exactly to the Anglo-Saxon form. I didn't know anything about the form. Nothing about the poem has to do with the tradition of Anglo-Saxon literature. It was the assignment that I had. Yeah. But using that form allowed me to use language in a different way. Yeah. Um, something that I'm just, uh, the only thing that I wanted to say going straight to what you were talking about mm. in, uh, is the poetry for anyone who wants to look deeper, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, mm. um, in terms of the flow from accepted form to personal ide or cultural identification, yeah. there are many poets who have used those two ideas differently at different points of their career. And with the two terms, poetics and poetic identification. Right? right. Well, what, what I mean is, is the idea of um, using language in a way that is expected from a specific audience. And then I guess, uh, but it's, it's so I think that summary to say getting back to one's roots, but, but the whole, the whole idea is that, certain poets have written form is something that gives rise to new ideas yeah. so we wouldn't be sitting here right now if there weren't some hour reserved somewhere in some cloud where yeah. our voices would be immortalized for better or worse yeah. um but there's no such thing as a controlled conversation or a controlled argument. Yeah. There's no such thing as a controlled poem. Yeah. And there's no such thing as writing and excising your own voice from yeah. your writing. Yeah. Uh, this is when it, when I have my students write poetry, when I teach poetry, um, and this was something uh, that I adapted from one of my teachers. I will have students sometimes choose a poet and do a, do a stealing poem, meaning mm -hmm. taking line for line and trying to write like that poet. Yeah. But I guarantee Clara Van Winkle copying Shakespeare is going to sound a whole hell of a lot more like Clara Van Winkle than yeah. it will Shakespeare. Yeah. Plagiarism is a thing when we copy and paste, but if you try to put things in your own words, you're making them your own. Yeah, and the context also informs right. the meaning. So the context and the, and the meaning and the 
the use of words. If you if I were to recite a poem by another author, it would still sound like you, though. It would still sound like me, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm agreeing. Yeah, I'm agreeing. My initial idea about this talking about grammar and certain what I consider problematic views of form and function. So the thing that has been troubling me is um, seeing a lot of my colleagues talking about the teaching of grammar as something um, classist, racist, elitist. Whereas uh, I believe that grammar is something that by saying certain populations of our students shouldn't be shouldn't have their grades affected by poor grammar to me that is absolutely that's, condescending that's just that that's racist right that's exactly bad. exactly yeah. and yeah. um the idea racist, exactly yeah. the whole idea that certain that grammar isn't really that important yeah. um there is something and anybody who goes on facebook regularly yeah. will have seen these things being reposted and articles being written about how in quote-unquote enforcing grammar is something that is uh, perpetuating different stratification of academia, whereas I pretty much think the problem is that our adjuncts don't know how to teach grammar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and basically w- with my students, and this goes back into the whole writing for an audience, Yeah. Um, if we just teach our students some basic grammar, our students can choose for themselves to write in using a typical grammar, using whatever they want, yeah. stream of consciousness, who cares? Yeah. Um, or if they're applying to a job on the other side of the country and they don't yeah. know who's going to be reading the letter, they can choose to use this standard English yeah. knowing that that might be better understood by their audience. And it is, in my opinion, our job as teachers to have the expertise, and this goes back to the mastery of the language, yeah to give our students every advantage we can. And my, all I'm saying is, guys, fellow teachers, doesn't take that long to give a grammar lesson. If you don't know how, please go learn. Mm. Um, Any adjunct in the English department should be able to learn how to give a good grammar lesson in maybe three hours worth of intensive learning of the subject. You do need to be able to answer the questions of why the form exists. But um, my point is that there are certain if you already if my education in piano and music in general was more structured mm-hmm. that I had to understand how to read music that I had to understand how to play certain things and it was more rigid if yeah. you will uh, I think I would have gained more out of it and I would have been able to play the piano later in my life I would have been able to well, piano, you're talking about but, musical yeah. theory yeah, yeah and and most musicians that I know who write their own music mm. many musicians who I know who write their own music have I'm not saying you have to take music theory to yeah. write your own music but I don't know anyone who said musical theory was bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's taken yeah. it and not at least enjoyed being exposed to certain ideas, yeah. whether or not they use them. Yeah. Um, do I think that everyone needs musical theory to write? No. Do I think everyone needs an education like of any formal sort to write? Yeah. Absolutely not. But our students are already signing up for a formal education. Yeah. Why not, since it's formal education, why not include some form that they can use or not? Yeah. I think so, the result of teaching grammar in a more structured way is that people will have the freedom to express themselves more clearly 
than if we would allow them to just express themselves in the way that they see fit. Well, it's all, it's you know? not even, it's not even dictating how, how one, it's understanding what grammar is. So yeah. grammar is actually the codified understanding of language transcribed as we would speak if we knew what we wish to say. Yeah, there's a lot of means where a comma is missing and it communicates something different exactly. than what the intention, we assume the intention was in the context. And the comma is merely a breath. Yeah. It's a point where in conversation we would pause, comma, take a breath, yeah. comma, and then continue. Yeah. And it's a notation that is useful for accurate communication. Mm. Grammar is not changing language. Just like if we were to grade our students based on using certain vocabulary words. We don't really do that anymore. Mm. We don't, definitely don't do that in college. We say, hey, read a bunch of books, learn a bunch of language from experience. Yeah. Grammar is the way in which students can have a a forum for using all of those new ideas and yeah. communicating all of those new ideas. Sure. Well, and going so. back to what we were talking about before, I would just argue that even at a more basic level, grammar helps you be specific. Being even yeah. more cynical, yeah. Yeah. attention to detail. Yeah. Here's where it becomes even more vital that yeah. we, especially at city colleges, teach students grammar. Think about it. Yeah. Various Within CUNY, there are still very different um, socioeconomic levels yeah. and different resources that students have access to. Um, some students have asked me, well, can't I just, when I get my job on Wall Street or whatever, yeah. can't I just pay somebody to edit my stuff? And I'm like, sure. But this is something that we need to be wary of. The whole reason why copy editors exist is because there is a certain class of people who can pay people to correct their grammar. Yeah. That is not the voice of the people that is yeah. that is people who have the extra resources to be like oh i don't need to do this for myself the whole point is that people are looking for precise communication mm. we need to give everyone the tools to use that communication on an even playing ground whether or not they can afford to get someone to check their work later yeah. whether or not they have enough friends in academia to proofread their work mm. The bottom line is we can say in we can say on Facebook like oh well we shouldn't worry about grammar we don't know where our students are coming from but later in their lives they will be missing a key tool if we don't take the what two weeks yeah. of class time to give them a foundation yeah. I'm talking what about yeah. I'm talking about specificity what I'm yeah. saying is that saying that correct use of grammar yeah. is something that has to do with a certain um, race, class, or gender yeah. ignores the fact that every single language everywhere has grammar. Yeah, course, grammar yeah. is not something be that not belongs specific, to standard yeah. English exactly. used by rich white dudes, yeah. right? It, every single language has its grammar. Yeah. But happily, all of our students can use language correctly. Language, we are born knowing how to use language. There are just a certain amount of rules that we need guidance and practice we want to, I guess, ideally understand other states of being and communicate our own and maybe even come up with an entire new language that merges the two. Yeah, I agree. This ends the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Arnathan. Please note that this interview was edited to fit in the time allotted.